a good story as well. Tell you, tell you the truth. Pull this thing out. You got one of these things? Pull this thing out. You can pull out your cell phone in this church. No, no worries. Some of you guys read your scriptures on it, but pull this thing out. Open up your, the page, your homepage on this thing. I don't see a whole lot of people doing this. Let's do this. Let's do this. You, you, pastor's giving you permission to pull out your phone. Check your messages. I don't know. Uh, you pull out this. You look at the apps on your home screen. And for me, this is the most important screen. I can flip through a lot of other screens to get all those secondary apps and stuff I, I like to get involved with. But this is the most important screen. And what fills my home screen are storytelling apps. We are inundated with stories in this culture. Like I said, movies and TV, and I can watch movies and TV on this thing. You guys can too, in the car, whatever, as long as you're not driving. I'm teaching that to my teenage son who's starting to drive now. You don't watch movies in the car while you're driving, but you can watch movies, you can read stories. Social media itself is a story-creating environment. We're sharing in stories from, from around uh, our communities, around our country and around our world. We are inundated with story all around us. We carry stories in our pockets every single day. You probably, if you've been to church for a while and you, you use a phone like this, you probably have like a Bible app on there too where you read God's story right there anywhere that you want to. And, and our culture, whether we like it or not, our, our culture now is becoming built around story story that, that we can relate to, similar stories. I, 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 uh, I was listening to a, a podcast this morning, talking about stories, not this morning, this week, and um, a statistician was on the podcast, and he was being interviewed, and he said that uh, millennials and, and the younger generation, and those especially right now in high school and junior high, from all around the world, it used to be that we were separated by our, our tribes, our countries, our communities, things like that. He says, the young folks around the world have so much more in common nowadays than differences. It doesn't matter if you're in Asia, if you're in Africa, if you're in America, you're in Canada, you're in Mexico, you're, you're wherever you are. What they're finding and what they're seeing is that these young folks, these young folks are connected and have similar experiences now because they're all sharing in this social network now on their computers, on their phones, wherever, and they're finding that all these differences that used to separate us, they're starting to go away with this younger generation. And a younger, a younger individual, a young man or young woman in today's culture can relate to kids around the world in a way that we who are older would never be able to do. The barriers are being broken down. And I think that we're seeing this politically, whether we agree with it or not, we're seeing it. This is how it's the political landscape is being shaped, cultures being shaped, where some of these boundaries and barriers are just being laid down because they're, they're connected now in their, their stories, their life stories, their life experiences, how they interact with one another. It's going to be very interesting to watch and see how this develops. But, but we love stories. We get drawn into a good narrative, a good story. God loves a good story as well. You think about the Bible. What is this? God handing us down these wonderful stories of, of trial, of challenge, of redemption, of God reaching out to redeem a people, to love his people, a story of creation, where we came from, a story of what, what's in store for us. God loves 
a good story. And Jesus used stories throughout his ministry, and Jesus was a master storyteller. And a lot of the stories that he told came in the form of parables. We're going to study some parables over the next few weeks. And parables, you could call them riddles. And Jesus would use these parables, these riddles, in, in a number of ways. And they were important because these parables, they, they, they revealed what the kingdom of God is like. These guys, these, uh, Jesus' nation, where he was coming from, was steeped in religion, was steeped in tradition, was steeped in, you do this, this, and this, and this, and this is how you know God, this is how you fellowship with God. And that had overtaken really what it meant to be in relationship with God and to be God's people. And Jesus comes in and he says, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what it means to be in relationship with God. They were meant to challenge. These parables were meant to challenge people. These parables were meant to thin the numbers. You think about that. We think about Jesus and and the Jesus we all cheer for and the the, the Jesus that the culture wants right now is the, the Jesus arms wide open and he's loving everybody and he's performing. He's healing everyone who's sick. He's answering all these questions. He's letting us do what we want to do because he just wants us to be happy. Jesus used his stories to thin the numbers to say, this is hard. This can be difficult. Being, you know, actually living a godly, holy life, there's a, there's a little bit of, there's some cost to that. It usually means we have to give up some of our, our self stuff and lay that at the foot of the cross and say, I don't want my self stuff driving my life. I want Christ driving my life. And so he would actually tell these stories and he had to actually go, if you've read the Bible, you know that he took his disciples off to the side after like all of these stories, all these parables and said, okay, guys, you, you didn't get this thing. Well, let me fill you in. Let me fill you in. But he used them to challenge to, to open their eyes to, to what the kingdom of God was actually like, and he was a master storyteller. And we're going to be looking at some, some of his stories. We're not going to be covering every single parable, but we're going to be looking at some of his stories. And today, right now, we're going to start with one of his most famous stories in Luke 15. We're going to be in Luke 15, so take out those phones, take out those Bibles, find one in the seat in front of you if you need to, borrow one. If you don't have a Bible at home, Grab one from the seat pocket in front of you. Take it home with you. We can, we can always get another Bible in this place. we got plenty of them. Um, Luke 15, New Testament, the life of Jesus. And he's going to be talking about a son that was lost. Now, this one's called the prodigal son or the lost son, depending on the headers in your, in your scriptures. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, a number of years, Christian all your life, you know this story. And tell you what, any of the guys here could probably stand up at this podium and say, you know what, this is what the story's about. Let me go through this story. Let me tell the story. And you, you guys could probably tell it as well. But what we find with some of these classic stories is that like a movie that you've watched over and over again or a good book that you've, watched, you've read over and over again, sometimes it, it loses a bit of the punch to us, for us right? And so some of these classic stories we need to get back into and take a look at it and see what truth, what nugget of truth, what piece of truth for my, my own heart, uh, where, where's God pulling me at this point in time? And so that's what we want to do. And, you know, as we get into the parables, we're going to be talking about what it means to be in Christ. We're going to be talking about what it means to relate to your neighbors and what it means to forgive your brother and sister, what it means to... Um, to, to have possession here, what it means for, uh, what's our hope in eternity, the, the next life to come. And so what we need to do is we're going to start right 
here at this very famous, this classic story that Jesus told, and we're going to talk, we're going to look at um, this God that is calling us, this God who is calling us, because before we look at ourselves, we need to have an understanding of who this God is. And so we're going to start with the prodigal son. Now, before we actually get into reading the prodigal son in chapter 15, we've got to take a little bit of context, look at the setting that Jesus is talking, uh, talking and speaking in, because if you just dive into some of this stuff, if you just open your Bible sometimes and you say, oh, this is a great passage of Scripture, I just want to read this one, sometimes we miss the context, sometimes we miss the environment, sometimes we miss what Jesus may actually be bringing to the table. It's like getting a new novel, a new book, all right? And you get that book and you open it up to chapter 5 and it says, now I'm going to start reading the the, the, the story at chapter 5 and find out what this is all about, and we, we miss the front end of it. So we want to do a little bit of review on the context and the setting. Chapter 14 in Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. We're not going to read all of chapter 14. We're just going to kind of set up the story, the narrative. Jesus is at a party. We find Jesus at parties all the time which is so interesting. You know what, Christians, we should be having great parties. We should be having Jesus-type parties. And that may not look like what we think it should look like, but we should be having great celebrations, great parties, because Jesus went to the parties. He goes to a banquet and says uh, on the Sabbath, he went to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, and he's at this banquet, and they're watching him closely. It says they're watching him closely. Pharisees are always watching Jesus closely. How's he going to mess up? What's he going to do? How's he going to push the buttons? How's he going to, you know, um, live outside of our box that, that we've boxed in our, our religion with? And they're always watching him. And he's at this party. Jesus has been invited to this party. And what would happen is the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, what they would do is they would get together every once in a while. I don't know. I, I didn't research far enough to see it. every Sabbath they got together or whatever, but this is on a Sabbath. They're getting together at one of the guy's houses, and I can imagine that they've sent out invitations. They say, hey, you come, you hum. Uh, I want to have a discussion with you. They, they gather this big table around of all these religious leaders, and they talk theology, they talk religion, they talk culture, they talk all of this stuff, all the stuff that's going on in the world. They talk Roman Empire and what's going on with that and, you know, how is God going to raise up a Messiah, ironically sitting right there at the table with him, with them, and they miss that. But they're talking about life and they're discussing, they're debating, they're, they're doing all this stuff. Imagine, if you will, um, we have a pastor's group that we're involved in, local pastors, and imagine, if you will, the pastor's group, we get together and we say, yeah, we're going to do roundtable talk, you know, this week, and we're going to discuss what's going on in the world and how your denomination's wrong and mine is right and blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. We're going to look at scripture, and we're going to invite, send out invitations, not for people to be a part of the discussion, but people just to sit and watch. Because what these guys would do is the religious leaders, they would get together for their feast, their banquet, they would have the food, they would have the fellowship, they would have the debate right there around the table, but they would put it in a place in the house that's sort of like the porch. It's still inside the house, but it's sort of like on the porch, and so there's probably a little half wall or something or divided area, and other people would gather around this. They're not sitting at the table. They're not discussing. They're not involved at all, but they're listening. They're listening, and they're listening because they've got their favorite preacher sitting in this corner, and he's duking it out with this preacher at the other corner, and they're debating, and, oh, yeah, he's great. He, what a great punch. Oh, yeah, he went to my favorite scripture, all that kind of stuff. These guys, the, the people, the common folks, are outside the porch, 
they're listening to the conversation. They're listening to the debate. This is, this is some of their entertainment. I could see that flyers went out and are on the, the posts, the, the electric, the telephone posts and all sorts of stuff like that in the city that, you know, come and see your favorite preacher and knock down, drag down debate happening here at this house on this day. Come and listen. Come and listen. So they would come and listen. It'd be like us pastors going down to like topic of the town and putting signs out. Hey, come, we're going to debate you know, whatever topic it may be, and it may go around to all sorts of topics as they're having this, this full-day meal. And come and listen, come and listen. Well, Jesus is there, and Jesus is a teacher. He's a rabbi. Who follows Jesus? The sinners. The sinners follow Jesus. It says in chapter 15, right off the bat in chapter 15, all the tax collectors and the sinners were approaching to listen to him. These aren't just the common folks. These are the folks who people want to drag out of town, people don't want to associate with. And Jesus, right here at the Sabbath, at this meal, he's asked the Pharisees a question. Hey, is it right to heal on the Sabbath or not? They don't answer him because they don't really want to get into that fight with him at the time. And he heals a guy, which they're taking notes. Sabbath, no work, no work. This is the meal. This is what we do. No work, though, Jesus. You're breaking the rules. They're taking notes. And he does that. And then he goes into a couple stories about who actually is invited to the kingdom of God. And he, he places it in a setting of a banquet. He's at a banquet. He says, hey, there's, there's a party going on. It's the kingdom of God. And these people are invited and they should have come and they didn't come and blah, blah, blah. So he's got all these stories about banquets happening. And then he gives them a challenge. At the end of 14, he, he, he gives them a challenge about what it means. You've got to count the cost of following me. You have to count the cost about following me. And at the end of that, you see and the sinners lean in. And the sinners lean in. They're following Jesus, and they want to hear more about what Jesus is telling them. So he's giving them a challenge and say, hey, you've got to count the cost, and the sinners lean in. And the Pharisees say to him, he says, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, the sinners were not around the table. They were eating at. They were not around the table, but they included him in that. A meal was intimate. A meal was fellowship. A meal was acceptance. If someone sat at your table, you accepted them. And he says, hey, he is welcoming these sinners, these tax collectors and these sinners. He is welcoming and he is eating with them. What is the deal with this? The tax collectors, they were in league with the, the Roman occupiers. And the Romans, they said, okay, we want to set up little stations around your cities and on your roads. And you Jewish men, you're going to man these tax stations. And so these Jewish men are collecting taxes for the Roman Empire. Rome didn't like them. Do you think their fellow countrymen like them? No, they didn't like them either. Because what would happen is these tax collectors, and if you've been here for a while, you know this stuff, the tax collectors, they would skim off the top. The Rome basically said, hey, you collect the taxes for us. If you need to charge more for, for your own uh, living or whatever, you can go ahead and do that. And so they would skim. They were greedy. They were corrupt. And they were taking money off the top, charging extra money to, to people to walk down the street. And... Uh, and they were rejected. They were just about the worst people in society. Well, there was another class of people who were the sinners. And their lifestyles or their occupations or their life choices kept them out of fellowship with God. And the religious leader said, hey, what you do is dirty and you cannot be clean. And you are on the outside. And the attitude with the Pharisees would be, tell you what. You get yourself cleaned up, you get yourself right, you get yourself purified, you 
put out enough sacrifices, enough offerings. You do all the stuff to get yourself cleaned up, and then maybe, just maybe, you can join this crowd of people around this table to listen and to hear what we have to say. And when Jesus speaks, the tax collectors and the sinners lean in. We want to hear more. We want to hear more from this man, Jesus. And the Pharisees are like, I, we can't believe it. These people that should be shunned, Jesus is welcoming in, and he's eating with them. He's fellowshipping with them. He's accepted them. He's accepted them. And Jesus goes in, and while he's at this banquet, while he sees this going on, while he hears the comments, he, tell, he starts telling stories about his father, about what, what it means to be a sinner, to be someone who is lost. And we're not going to go through all three of these. We're just going to go through the third one, but I want to mention them here. He talks about the, the sheep that was lost. A shepherd has a hundred sheep. One of them gets lost. One of them takes off, and he's lost, and he's, he's in danger. And, and he says that what the shepherd does is he leaves the 99 who are safe and secure, who are part of the family, who are part of the flock. He leaves them, and he goes seeking and seeking and seeking to find that lost sheep. And what I love in this is it says, when that lost sheep is found, heaven rejoices. When that lost sinner is found, heaven rejoices. There is clapping and there is applause in heaven. Heaven is rejoicing in that. And he tells a story about, in chapter 15, about the lost coin. A woman loses a coin. She's got a number of coins, and she loses one coin, and she turns the house upside down trying to find this coin. Think, think about credit cards. You got, you got a wallet? Think about having five credit cards in your wallet. I think that's like the average number of credit cards people hold nowadays, which is got my own opinions on that. But anyway, uh, think about your wallet, and, and you've got five credit cards in your wallet. One of them slips out somewhere. You've got four credit cards in your wallet. Are you concerned about the four credit cards in your wallet? No, you are concerned about the one that is lost, and you're calling the bank. Did I leave it there? You're calling the restaurant. Did I leave it there? You're calling your friends and neighbors. Did I leave it there? You're scouring. You're turning your house apart, trying to find this lost credit card. And when it comes back to you, when you find it, what is your response? Oh, thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. And you put it safely, tuck it back into your wallet. And it says that when that lost coin is found, when that lost sinner is found, the angels rejoice. In the first story, heaven is rejoicing. The second story, the angels are rejoicing. In this third story, what we find, what we're going to find, is God, the Father, is rejoicing when the sinner is found. So Jesus is starting in on these stories. And these stories are about God is a seeking God. There's the sum up of the message. God is a seeking God. Great, amen. We can go home. God is a seeking God. Now stay with me. God is looking for those who are lost. And some people, some commentators will say, oh, well, this story, these stories are about just the sinners who are outside God's family. And it's just for those who are unbelievers. And it is for the unbeliever those who have not accepted Jesus as their Savior yet. Some commentaries will say, no, this is for the one who's, who's been in the family of God, but he's strayed, or he or she is strayed, and I think there's a message for that as well. It's for both. God is a seeking, loving God. And Jesus starts into these stories telling us who his Father is and what his Father wants. And so as we approach the parables... I think it's critical that we, we look at who God is. 
before we start looking at these other stories that we're going to go through the next couple weeks, looking at who God our Father is and introducing, if you do not know who God the Father is, introducing God, who, this is who God the Father is. He is a seeking God. He is a looking God. He, he looks out for His people. He looks for people to join His family. So this is a critical spot to begin. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus has told two stories. And he also said, okay, he goes into his third story, a man had two sons. So now here we have the setup. Jesus says, here's a family. A man has two sons. There's a father. There's a younger brother. There's an older brother. We're going to see that there are servants. And we're going to see that there are pigs in this story too. There's all these people in this story, making up this story that Jesus is about to tell. He said, a man had two sons. A man had two sons. A younger, uh, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. That's a pretty bold statement. If you actually think about what that means, and, and lots of preachers have stood up and said, you know what, this son wanted his father dead. What does it mean to ask for your inheritance while your father is still alive? I can't wait, I can't wait, you know, either, either die or give me what I deserve right now because I can't wait. This is, this is a terrible request by the son. And it, it wasn't unheard of that fathers would divide up property before they died. Actually, they had like a will and they couldn't give their property to the, the, their, um, their sons and their daughters. They couldn't just like give their property and they would have nothing. Uh, but the, the father could actually give up portions of his estate and the son, but we're going to see the son's hard attitude just in a few moments. The son makes this very bold, strong request. Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he, the father, distributed the assets to them. And this Sometimes we think that, oh, well, now the father has nothing. Now the father has absolutely nothing. He did not actually, like, give everything to his sons. What he's got, he set his sons up as, as managers. They have control of the estate now. And what he probably would have done is said, okay, yep, as tradition, the, the older boy, you're going to get two-thirds of the estate. The younger boy, you're going to get about a third of the estate. The older boy, you're going to be managing this, running this, investing this. Younger boy, this is going to be yours to, for years. These, these, this would have been what they get in the future when he did die, and they would get total control over the estate. But, hey, you're going to manage this. You're going to do this. Um, you're going you're to work these fields, this house, whatever it may be. So he divides up his estate per tradition, for the older son and the younger son. And the father would have lived off of the investments, would have lived off the assets and the income that was coming to him. So the father is still tied to the estate. The father still had income, even though he had given control to his sons. He said, basically, I'm giving up control of this. You run the investments. You run the property. You bring the money in. But the father still had a right to the income from the property. Okay? But the younger son does something pretty drastic. It really shows his heart. Not many days later, it says in verse 13, not many days later, not many days later means that this boy had thought out this plan. This boy knew what he was going to do. The younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country. If you're the father, you've divided up to the older son, the younger son, what they should be getting in inheritance and getting in control of property. And the younger son has 
okay, you're going to have this house, you're going to have this field, you're going to have this bank account, you're going to have these cars, you're going to have this. This is going to be yours to control. Now, what the younger son does is it says that he gathered up all he has. You don't gather up a house, you don't gather up a field, you don't gather up your flocks usually if you're going to, you know, you're going to leave town. The, the son would have had to like sell and liquidate all of those assets. And what he would have done is by liquidating all those assets, he would have been leaving his father as not being able to gather income from the continued prosperity of that property. I'm selling the field, I'm selling the house, I'm selling the vehicles, whatever. I'm gathering in my bag of money, I'm putting on my credit card or whatever, and I am going to this distant country. And I'm sorry, Father, but that's just the way it was. He, may, he might as well have killed his father off because he has cut him off from prospering and getting money and income from his side of the inheritance. And it says he goes to a distant country. Well, what does that mean? That's code word for he went to a pagan land. He's a good Jewish boy. He goes off and lives with the Gentiles. What did the Gentiles do? They're unholy. They're unclean. They can't fellowship. You know, they have no access to God because of their actions and their lifestyle. Uh, and so he has forsaken his country, his family, his town, all his friends, all his relatives. He has gathered all that he can gather as quickly as he can gather, and he goes off to this distant country. And if you've been in the scriptures long enough, you've been a believer long enough, we know what happens to this young man. He traveled to a distant country, verse 13, where he squandered his estate in foolish living. Foolish living being code word for sinful living. And we're going to see he's called out for it later on. A life of sin. He leaves and he trades a life with family, with with prosperity. This family would have been wealthy if they were able to do this kind of thing. Leaves his prosperity, his stability, his family, his friends, everything he has connection with, and he goes off on his own to live in a, a sinful lifestyle, to follow after his own heart, his own desires. And what happens to him in verse 14? After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck the country, and he had nothing. He had nothing. Now, the point of this message is not that, oh, you stay in God's will, you will prosper, you will be wealthy, you will be happy, you will be content. That's not the point of this message. But what Jesus is pulling out here is that he has gone off, he's done his own thing, he's forsaken his family, and now he finds himself in a world of hurt. Has anybody ever blown through money? You don't have to raise your hands. Don't do that. Uh, as, I'll raise my hand. Has anybody ever blown through money? Have you sold something and you had grand plans for the money and, oh, this is going to set me up for a time or whatever, and you find yourself, the checking account is down to zero? You sell a car, you sell a house, you sell this, or you get an inheritance, or you get a return on investment. And we say to ourselves, where did the money go? Well, we know where this son's money went in foolish, sinful living. And on top of that, the, the thing that he had control over, he loses. He spends, he squanders, it has gone away. But on top of that, on top of that, a severe, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. He had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens, because what do you do when you're out of work? Well, this is what we 
probably should do when we're out of work, we're out of money, whatever. We go try to find a job. We have to go survive. This guy has absolutely nothing. He's in a distant country. He does not have money probably just to travel back home um, or, or go to something, somewhere where he's familiar with. He went and worked for one of the citizens of that country. Where is he living? A pagan nation, which means he's working for a pagan Gentile, an unclean person. And where does he work? And he sent him to the fields to feed the pigs, an unclean profession. A good Jewish boy would not touch this job with a 10-foot pole. He was taught not to even associate with this kind of lifestyle or living, but he comes to the, the end of his rope. He has nothing. He has to find work. He's probably starving. He's probably starving. They're, they're in a famine. He is not going to the government to find a handout. Uh, nobody has an open purse at this time. Nobody can help because you know what? The other families are going through the famine as well. It's not just him. So things are tightening. Jesus is saying things are tightening. He can't find the help and support that he needs. He has to go work in this ungodly profession doing ungodly work. And he longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. No one would give him anything. This guy is at the end of his rope, and it says in verse 17, when he came to his senses, when he thought it through, when he realized what he had done, who he was, how he had squandered, who his family is, all that, he's thinking through all this. He's got lots of time in the fields feeding the pigs. He's, he's playing this over in his head, over and over and over and over again. He came to his senses, and he said in verse 17, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. What a state of humility. What a state of shame. What a state of, of guilt this young man would have been in. Jesus has told this story, and Jesus has put this guy at the bottom of the barrel. And the Pharisees are sitting around this table and probably thinking, yeah, you know, this guy got what he deserved. He left. He gave it up. He's not following God. He's not obeying his parents. He's not following the Ten Commandments. He's living a sinful life. Yeah, he gets what he deserves. Yeah, he gets what he deserves. And we've got to, I want to sit here for a minute. This, this boy's situation, this young man's situation, he's going to attempt to go home. He's going to attempt to beg and plead and grovel and be on his knees coming to his father saying, I am not your son. I cannot be your son because of what I have done. Can I be your slave? Can I be your servant? I'm groveling. I'm on my knees. I will do anything you ask me of. I will clean out the pens. I will do whatever. And this boy going into this situation saying, I will go home. I will ask this of my father. This boy is going to still be in a, a literal hell on earth. He's feeling it overseas. He's going to feel it at home as well. Because what happened in this family? This boy left and took everything he had. He, he basically disowned, disenfranchised his father from the prosperity that he should have been getting. He caused shame on his family. Can you imagine the talk around the town as, as he's left? Can you believe the Smith boy, what he did? 
Where'd he go? Oh, I heard he was over in such and such, working in such and such town. Can you believe that he is actually laying in the field with the pigs? I'm glad my son's not like that. I'm glad my daughter didn't do those things. I'm glad my son never ran around with him because he's such a bad influence. The rumor, the shame, the, the guilt placed upon this boy and upon this family because of his actions would have been heavy. And coming back to his home country, do you think he's expecting to become, he's not expecting to come back into his home. Do you think he's expecting to be able to walk through the marketplace with his head held high? No, he's not going to the market. He's, he actually, in fact, there's a chance that when he gets home, his father has the right, his parents have the right to drag him to the city gates. There's actually a law, a law and an interpretation of that law where you can drag a reckless son who is squandered, and he's a glutton, and, and he's, he's ruining your family. You can drag him to the city gates. You say to the elders, this is what he's done. Dude, 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 here he is. This is what he's done. This is what he's done. You cast judgment upon him, and then you may stone him. This boy was looking at possibly being stoned because he was so reckless in his attitude towards his family and what he had done to his family and the ruin and the shame he was bringing to his family. His parents could have said, he is not our child. We want nothing to do with him. And I can imagine the walk home, the miles and miles of walking, this all going through his boy, this boy's brain saying, I am not worthy, I am not worthy, if he will only let me be a slave, if he will only let me do this servant's work, then at least I can live. But it wasn't going to be heaven on earth. This would be a continual hell on earth for this boy. Death is the result of this. He was dying in the foreign nation. Even to come back to his hometown, he is going to be living in a state of death because people will not associate with him. He's not invited to the banquet and the, the, the parties with his friends anymore. He's not going to be allowed to go to temple or to synagogue or whatever. This boy is tainted. He is useless. He is reckless. He is, he is nothing but shame upon him. And he says, I'm still going to trek back home and see if I can be that slave in my father's house. And you know what? In the back of his mind, he's thinking, yeah, they, they may actually throw stones at me. I may actually have to face a literal death, but I deserve it. It's, what, it's who I am. It's, it's who I am. It's what I've done. So he got up in verse 20. He got up. He's, he's already thought through what he's going to do, who he is how he responds to his father. He's going to be on his knees. He's going to be groveling. He's going to be begging and pleading for his life. While the son, while this young man was still a long way off, imagine a really long driveway. We got those up here in the North Country, right? Imagine a really long driveway. He's at the end of the driveway. Here I go. Here I go. I can imagine him standing there at the end of his driveway. I can imagine him coming into town, into the, crossing the town line and, okay, Okay, I can imagine him walking through town, getting to the end of the driveway. Okay, Lord, you know, what's going to happen here? While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, which is implied that his father is looking for him. His father was continually looking for him. His father had not given up looking for this boy. He saw him. He was filled with compassion, filled with love, and he ran. Now, Middle Eastern fathers did not run. They wore robes. It was undignified. They would not run. 
in fact, they probably didn't show a whole lot of emotion. They were head of the house, you follow my rules, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff, and it'll be well in our family. They do not run. They do not show this kind of emotion. He ran to his son. He had been watching for his son. He had been gazing down that driveway every single day, waiting for his son to return. He knew the rumors. He heard the stories. Who knew what his son was up to? And he continued to watch and watch and watch and seek after him. And he ran and he tore down the driveway, running towards him. And he didn't just run and and he didn't come and he didn't run and he punched him in the face. He ran he embraced him threw, him, threw his arms around him, kissed him, kissed him and accepting a, love, a show of affection. And the son said to him, the, the son has been rehearsing this in his head for a long time. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father cuts him off. He doesn't let him finish the rest of the story. He doesn't plead, let him plead to be a servant in the household. He doesn't let him plead to be a slave in his household. The father cuts him off, but the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe, put it on him. Put on a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring out the fattened calf. Let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and he is alive again. This seeking God, this seeking father is watching for his, his son to return home. And it's not, it's, he doesn't judge. He doesn't condemn. He doesn't take him by the the ear or the arm and pull him to the city gates and say, oh, we're going to deal with you now. We're going to deal with you. No, no, no. He embraces and he loves. He runs. He pursues. He says, my son is alive. He was dead to the family. He was dead to town. He was dead to his community, literally and figuratively. And the father says he was dead and now he is alive. This father is about embracing that what was dead and making it alive again. We see a father who is all about the lost, the seeking. And of course, in this story, the father is God. The sinner is either that person who has not accepted Jesus as their savior, is not in relationship with God, or those who, of us who have strayed away, who wandered away, and feel like, I could never go back to God. I've done so much. I've screwed up so much. I, I've, put, uh, I've pulled so much money out of the, the bank account of my relationship with God. I could never approach him again. I am never good enough. I can't walk through the doors of the church without lightning striking me down. And the father says, no, I'm standing here, arms wide open, waiting for you. I've been looking for you your whole life. I've been waiting on you. It says, we are going to celebrate. And here Jesus is at another party. We are going to celebrate because you were lost, you were dead, and now you are found. And he, he puts his robe, just think about what this, this father is doing. We don't, we don't do this kind of stuff in our culture, but in this culture, he puts the best robe on him. He covers him with the family robe saying, you have a position in this family. You have a position in this family. He puts a ring on his finger, and it would have been like a signet ring on his finger, something with the family seal on it, which means that, hey, you have authority in this family. Not only am I covering you, I'm protecting you, I'm going to guard you from people who are out there who may still want to stone you, I'm giving you the signet ring, the seal of the family, saying you have authority, you go to the market, you purchase, you buy, you, you can you do all of those activities that a son of mine can do, and I'm giving you the authority on your hand to do it. And he puts sandals on his feet, Slaves did not wear sandals. Free men wore sandals and, and things on their, they wore footwear. It says, you are free. You are free. 
son never had a chance to go and say, I don't want to be free. I just want to be a slave. The father cuts him off and says, no, you're covered by my authority. You've given authority in the, in, in the community, and you are free. You are free, and the father throws a lavish party for his son. He throws a banquet, <clears throat> and the killjoy comes in. The killjoy comes in. Now, in verse 25, now his older son, the older brother, was in the field. He's working. He's the dutiful one. He's, he's the one out there earning an income, bringing money in for the family. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. I am the Lord of this castle. You are, someone is throwing a party here, and I do not know anything about it. Someone is spending my money, and I know nothing about it. What is going on here? And the servant says in verse 27, your brother is here. He says, your brother. The father has embraced him as his son. There is no disconnect in the family anymore. Your brother is here, he told them. Your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him safe. Uh, safe and sound. Then he, the older son, became angry and didn't want to go in. God is the father in this story. The, the lost son is the sinner coming, coming to the father. The older brother is the Pharisee. And Jesus is sitting at the table with the Pharisees. He has all the sinners listening around to their debate and their dialogue. And he says, uh, this older brother... This is you around the table. This is you around this table. And the, the Pharisees would have said, yeah, he should have been kicked out. He should have been stoned. He, you know, that's, that's what you get. You displease God. You don't follow our traditions. This is what you get. This is what you get. This brother of mine who walked back through this door, he's going to say, he's going to accuse him. He's going to accuse him and say, he's been with prostitutes. He's been reckless living. He devoured your assets. All of this stuff. This son of yours, this is no brother of mine. I disown him. He is out of my family. I do not want to have anything to do with him. He's not following the rules of this family. He's not following the way this family should be acting or behaving. In fact, in verse 29, he says, Look, I have been slaving many years for you. Listen to that. The older brother is the son in the family, has all the riches, all the prosperity, everything that he needs for security and peace and happiness, and, and the father has provided that for him. And he says, he does not know who the father is. He says, I've been your slave all these years. Whereas you welcome in this sinner who's gone astray. What's the deal here? I've been slaving, slaving for you all these years. And this no good son of yours comes in and you're going to throw him a party. And what's great about this story, what's one of the great pieces about this story is in verse 28, it says, after this guy's angry, this guy's venting, he's raging, so his father came out and pleaded with him. Not only does God plead with the sinner and those who need to come into his family, God is also seeking those who are think they're in the family. God's arms are wide open. This father would have embraced and hugged and kissed this son. You're here. All that you, that, you've, all that you've had, all that was mine is yours. You've had it. You had it. You're part of this family. You're part of this family. And the son is out there sulking in the field. And we don't get to hear about the end of this thing. 
We don't get to hear how this thing concludes. Uh, Did the son, did the older son come in? Did the brother come in to celebrate? I don't think so. I think he kept sulking in the field. And we see the Pharisees throughout Jesus' ministry sulking in the field, sulking in their self-righteousness, sulking in their condemnation, sulking and, and rejecting those that the Father loves and is accepting. The younger brother went through hell on earth, and he was accepted by a loving father, arms wide open, stretched out wide open, say, come to me, come to me. Your, the robe, the ring, the sandals, it's all yours. Hey, also, Pharisees, you're part of this family. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. Change your hearts, change your heart. There's a great big world of people out there that I want to accept. And God tells us in his scriptures, Paul writes this, he says, Therefore be imitators of God. Therefore, be imitators of God. God has the heart wide open. God has the arms wide open. God is running after the sinner. Be imitators of God. As beloved children, you are in the family. If we are in relationship with God, we are in his family. Be imitators of your father. He's talking to the Pharisees. Be imitators of the father. Just follow the father. What does the father do? He accepts them. The the Pharisee sits on the outside. The the Pharisee in the pews sits on the outside and says, they don't act like me. They don't look like me. Uh, I don't approve of their lifestyle. I I don't want to have anything to do with them because they are outside of this community, outside of this family, and they are obviously living in a life of sin. And the father says, no, they're welcome in. They're welcome in. And he asks us to follow the Father, be imitators of the Father. And maybe you've been on the receiving end of disowning. Maybe you've had family or friends disown you. Know that there is a loving Father who is waiting there at the end of the driveway, seeking that which is lost and saying, come to me, come back to me. Maybe we've been on the other side of actually doing the disowning and I don't like them. They, don't, they look kind of icky to me. I don't approve of them. I'm going to keep my distance from them. And the loving Father says, you are not acting like me. Open up your arms. Open up your hearts to them. Invite them into a relationship with me. And we have to sit here, and we've been shown who the Father is. We've been shown the heart of the Father. And we need to sit here saying, Is my heart an imitation of that, or am I doing something totally different? Am I out sulking in the field, waiting for the judgment to come? Or is my heart embracing those who have been lost? Right today, in just a minute, I'm going to invite the the gentleman to come forward to do communion. We're going to celebrate communion together. This is a celebration. This is another banquet. This is is a banquet of uh, foreshadowing what's to come. Uh, Those of us who are in the family of God, we're going to enjoy endless banquets, an endless feast with our Lord and Savior, and we get to come. Jesus said, hey, this is the last meal I'm going to celebrate with you disciples. He's at the the last day with his disciples. This is the last meal I'm going to celebrate with you disciples. This is me. This is my body. This is my blood that's broken and spilled for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Don't forget. Don't forget. Don't forget who I am. Don't forget my teaching. Don't forget who the Father is. He's welcomed you in. He's welcoming others in. Do this in remembrance of me. And and 2,000 years later, we get to continue doing this in remembrance of our loving Father who sacrificed everything for each and every single one of us in this room. 
when you get the elements, if you, this is for those who are believers in Jesus Christ. It doesn't do anything to save us, to heal us. This is us remembering and celebrating what God has done for us. When you get the elements, when it's passed to you, go ahead and, and take them as you feel led. Don't wait for me. I'm not going to stand up and say, let's take these all together. You take them as you feel led. And as we are taking communion together, then we're going to have a time of worship as well.